I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, our guest is 2020 Kirkus Book Prize finalist Eric J. Dolan, whose book, A Furious Sky, explores the destruction caused by hurricanes throughout U.S. history and the science and technology being applied to help deal with them today. Eric J. Dolan, your new book about hurricane history is called A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. I thought it would be interesting to start our discussion with one of the stories you tell, because it's the deadliest hurricane in American history and also the 120th anniversary. It's the Galveston hurricane. And I wanted to tell our our audience, as you're describing what happened there, we've got an an unusual archival bit of film to add to the discussion from the 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 National Archives, and it it was shot by Thomas Edison. So we're going to watch that and have you tell us what happened 120 years ago in Galveston, Texas, when the hurricane struck. Yeah. In early September, a hurricane was slowly making its way across the Atlantic, uh, going in between Cuba and Florida. But the local meteorologist in Galveston, uh, Texas, a guy named Isaac Klein, based on his understanding of how hurricanes operated, he had told the residents of Galveston that the odds of a hurricane hitting Galveston are virtually nil. Uh, Just the laws of uh, hurricanes indicate that hurricanes rarely would hit Texas. So they were lulled into a false sense of complacency. As the hurricane got closer and closer, uh, Isaac Klein became more and more alarmed, but it was really up to the headquarters office of the Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C. to decide whether or not a hurricane was coming and whether or not you needed to put up hurricane warning flags. Uh, the local meteorologists, such as Isaac Klein, had less latitude in calling the shots. So on the morning of uh, September 8th, uh, Saturday morning, he uh, started to notice that the uh, the water and the waves and the wind uh, coming off the Gulf of Mexico were getting stronger and stronger. And he got quite concerned. There was no calling for a hurricane. The Weather Bureau hadn't indicated the hurricane was coming, but uh, Isaac was quite concerned, and he, he relayed his concern to the Weather Bureau, but by the time that he did so, the storm was so bad that uh, the telephone lines had been knocked out. So by that time, Galveston was becoming inundated with an enormous storm surge, and part of the problem in Isaac Klein's view is that he and other meteorologists didn't understand the importance of storm surge. He thought that if a hurricane ever came near Galveston, since the waters are very shallow offshore, uh, the waves would break and most of the water would travel around Galveston into the lands and the bay behind it. But because he didn't understand storm surge, and as this massive Category 4 hurricane was barreling directly into Galveston, it was pushing before it an enormous wave, essentially, especially on the right-hand side of the hurricane, an enormous mound of water. And it is that mound of water with the waves crashing and tumbling on top of it that slammed into Galveston that day and essentially turned Galveston into a lake. Uh, Massive destruction, houses were torn apart. At least 6,000 people died on that day, but because it was tourist season and many people were visiting from other parts of the United States and the world, 
We'll never know the exact number, and some estimates have it as high as 10,000 or 12,000 people dying on that day. And as you noted, it is the worst natural disaster ever to hit the United States by far. And it's the, it's the hurricane that every year when we have hurricane season, there are always stories on the great Galveston hurricane of 1900 because it was so horrific. And uh, the story behind it and the failure to warn the residents of Galveston in advance of the hurricane makes for tragic and dramatic reading. Prior to the hurricane, uh, it was quite the community. You described it as the Wall Street of the Southwest. Uh, What was its recovery like? Well, uh, it was really leveled. uh, And part of the problem was that a few years after the hurricane of 1900, Galveston, which was poised before the hurricane struck to be the leading port in the United States. It was already, I think, the second or third. And it it wanted to be the leading port. They just dredged the harbor so larger ships could come in. But the hurricane basically knocked them back to square one. And then worse for them, Houston soon thereafter became the leading port of Texas because of the discovery of black gold or oil in Texas. And so uh, development passed Galveston by to some extent. It's still an important port, but uh, it really was knocked on its heels. But the people of Galveston decided that it was necessary to rebuild and to fortify their city against hurricanes that they knew would come in the future. So they unshelled the project that had been raised years before, and that was building a seawall around Galveston. But not only did they build an enormous seawall around Galveston, they also decided to lift up Galveston. Galveston was only about an average of six feet above sea level. So what they did is they jacked up all the buildings in Galveston by uh, quite a few feet, and then they took uh, sand from offshore and filled in the area under these buildings. So essentially the profile of Galveston was now much higher than it was on the eve of the hurricane in 1900. And not only that, they had an enormous seawall to keep them from being buffeted by the storm surge and waves. And it actually worked quite well because in 1915, another major hurricane struck Galveston, but the death toll was far, far less. It was in the tens and twenties and the destruction of housing was much less than what had occurred in 1900. So their investment was a wise one. Throughout the book, uh, there are stories of both economic and racial discrimination on populations uh, in the preparation and aftermath of hurricanes. Tell me a story from Galveston that illustrates that. Well, Galveston had a lot of black residents as well as white residents. It was a very affluent community, but there were also a number of middle class and poor people there as well. And after the hurricane, uh, they had to collect the dead bodies. And many black men at gunpoint were forced to do this horrific deed. Uh, Also, uh, there were a lot of people wandering around shell-shocked, essentially. And although there was probably a little bit of looting that took place, it was not widespread. Nevertheless, the national media started to run with numerous stories of ghouls wandering around Galveston, cutting off people's fingers to get their rings, cutting off their ears, stealing whatever they could, and then many of them being shot. In fact, one report had 
uh, these ghoulish individuals who almost always were identified as black men uh, wandering around. One report indicated that 75 of them had been shot dead. However, more sober uh, observers, including the editors of some of the local newspapers, said that that was all extremely exaggerated. Maybe a few people were shot dead because they were looting, and the looting was divided equally, if at all, between blacks and whites. But that was just reflecting the racial stereotypes of the day, uh, these reports that uh, of these black ghouls wandering around, stripping people of their possessions. As a writer, how did you get interested in doing a book about hurricane history? Uh, that's an interesting story. Uh, this is my 14th book. Every single book I've written has been on a topic that I came up with, except for two. And the, the way that I came up with topics is uh, just whatever interests me. It's often like Brownian in motion. I write one book and I read something while researching that book that piques my interest in another book. Uh, I often focus on maritime issues because when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and be Jacques Cousteau and I've always loved marine biology. Uh, but the two books that I didn't come up with the topic for are my lighthouse book, Brilliant Beacons. That was proposed by my editor and head of sales at Live Right. And this book, what happened is I had long thought about writing a book about a hurricane, a single hurricane. And the most likely candidates were the Galveston hurricane of 1900 and the great hurricane of 1938, which plowed into Long Island and then into New England, where I happened to live. But there was a problem. Both of those hurricanes are very well known and both of them have had wonderful books written about them. So I decided that I didn't want to write yet another book on one of those two hurricanes and add to the literature stuff that was already there, essentially. So I put aside my hurricane idea and I went on to write a, a book on pirates called Black Flags, Blue Waters. But then after the season, the hurricane season of 2017, as you and your listeners will and viewers will probably remember, was the hurricane season from hell. That's when Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria pummeled the United States and cumulatively caused $265 billion worth of damage. After that hurricane season came through, again, my editor at LiveRight and the head of sales thought, you know, a book on the history of America's hurricanes would be fascinating. And they thought that I would be just the person to do it because a lot of my books span multiple centuries and require the synthesis of huge amounts of information into a popular narrative. So they reached out to my agent and my agent sent me an email saying, hey, would you like to write a book on the history of hurricanes? I didn't say yes right away. I took about a month to go off and read a bunch of books on hurricanes and to see if I could get a vision of what the overall book would look like. And after doing that research, I was totally on board I said yes, and I wrote a uh, proposal, and the rest is history. That's uh, where the book came from. So in addition to the research that you did that you just described, were, did you travel for your research? And did you do any experiential things related to hurricanes, such as visiting NOAA's weather center or going up in a hurricane watching airplane? No, I, I, I did not. I don't mean to disappoint people, but as I say, I wrote a book on the history of whaling. I never harpooned a whale. I wrote a book on the history of the fur trade. I've never trapped a beaver. I wrote a history of the 
lighthouses, and I had only seen one lighthouse before I started work on that. I did not have an opportunity to go up in a Hurricane Hunter plane, nor did I ask to. I did not visit the National Hurricane Center, but I had the benefit of being able to track down enormous quantities of information and documents and reports written by Hurricane Hunter pilots and people that were on board, uh, things that were written and uh, visual accounts of National Hurricane Center meteorologists doing their job. So I don't feel that the book, uh, you know, suffered at all from me not having experience directly with uh, going up in a Hurricane Hunter plane or visiting the National Hurricane Center. Also, I have to add that I've never lived through a major hurricane or even a minor hurricane. I've only lived through the tail ends of hurricanes. When Hurricane Sandy came up and plowed into New Jersey and New York, I certainly felt it up here in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and Hurricane Bob in 1991 and Hurricane Gloria. So I felt the outer effects of hurricanes, but I have never had an experience, the likes of which I talk about many times in the book, of people who have suffered a direct strike of a hurricane. And I, although I've heard from many people already who've read the book, who have lived through hurricanes and have that experience that so many people who lived through hurricanes have of uh, denoting life before the hurricane and after her- the hurricane. And I've been very happily surprised, not surprised, but it's been very happy for me to hear from readers who have lived through hurricanes uh, telling me that they enjoyed the way that I described the hurricanes and it brought their memories flooding back to them. One tradition that you note in the book is that your daughter does an illustration for each one of the books. I wanted to show that to our viewers of palm trees being whipped. How did that all get started? Well, that started with my book, Brilliant Beacons, The History of the American Lighthouse. I work on these books for almost two years, and my daughter was a teenager at the time, and she lived at home. She's also quite a good painter and often painted, paints with her uh, grandmother, who's a professional painter. And I was getting near the end of Brilliant Beacons, and I guess my daughter was tired of me spending so much time in my office, which you see behind me. This is our converted garage. So one weekend, she had a painting class with her grandmother. She took a photograph of the Edgartown Lighthouse with her, and during that day, she painted an 18 by 20 inch painting of the Edgartown Lighthouse and gave it to me later that day, And she said, Dad, this is an incentive to get you to finish this book faster. So I framed it. I put it up on my wall. And I decided that we should start a tradition. So for Black Flags, Blue Waters, when I was getting near the end of the book, uh, I said, Lily, I need a painting. So she went off and she painted a small painting of a pirate ship looking for its next victim. And that appeared in Black Flags, Blue Waters. And then for this book, Uh, Furious Sky, once again, I was near the end of the book. She was living in New York City at the time. She came home for a weekend, went over to her grandmother's studio, and painted this painting of palm trees being buffeted by hurricane-force winds, and that made it into the book. So it's just a, a nice tradition. It has a lot of meaning for me. And actually, when I give talks, especially here in New England, people always ask me, where's your daughter's painting? Or can we see your daughter's painting? Because uh, those people who read multiple copy, multiple books of mine now are getting used to the fact that one of Lily's paintings is going to be in there. 
I wanted to run through fairly quickly some basic facts about hurricanes with you um, that you detail in the book. So first of all, what is the actual definition of a hurricane? A hurricane is a uh, violent swirling storm with winds of at least, sustained winds of at least 74 miles per hour. And there are five categories of hurricane and it gets stronger with each category as you go up. But essentially a hurricane forms, what it needs are three basic ingredients. It needs uh, warm ocean temperatures of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit down to 150 feet. And that provides the massive amounts of heat energy needed to fuel the storm. Two other conditions for a hurricane to form uh, keep from being ripped apart are low vertical wind shear. You don't want winds at different heights going in different directions because it'll either tilt the hurricane over or rip it apart. And you also need an abundance of warm, moist air coming off of the ocean because as that moist air rises, it cools and condenses into water or ice crystals. And when it does that, it gives off what is called latent heat of condensation, which is the heat that in turn powers the storm. So they simply are the the greatest storms on earth, the most powerful storms uh, that we can experience. And as you know, hurricanes in different parts of the world are called different things. Here in the Atlantic and the Eastern Pacific, we call them hurricanes. In the Indian Ocean, they're called cyclones. In the Pacific Ocean, they're called typhoons. Down in Australia, some people call them willy-willies. But they're all basically the same Uh, meteorological phenomena. There has been some measurement, which you report in your book, about the amount of energy that hurricanes actually create. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, there's both wind energy and there's the energy that comes from latent heat of condensation. In terms of wind energy, an average hurricane generates 200 times the annual electrical generating capacity of the world. But if you look at the latent heat of condensation, which is what really drives the storm, an average hurricane generates 200 times the annual electrical generating capacity in the world. So these are absolutely enormous, powerful, and as we know, often quite destructive storms. Wow, if there was only a way to capture all that energy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, what, what exactly is the eye of a hurricane and what causes it? Well, the eye of a hurricane is, is basically when there's low pressure area, the moist air rises off of the ocean surface. And essentially, it doesn't create a vacuum, but it creates a low pressure area. Wherever you have a low pressure area, wind or air wants to go in and fill that low pressure area. So as the wind is, as the moist air is rising in the center of a hurricane, Uh, There's wind and and stuff coming in from the sides. But the Coriolis effect sort of causes that wind to be shifted a little bit to the right. So that's where you get the swirling nature of the hurricane. And the center becomes this clear, uh, sometimes you can even see the sky above with gentle winds. Because what you have there is you have all this air going up and then exiting at the top of the hurricane. But... Around it is this swirling mass of extremely active wind. So it's just, it's basically the gentle center of, of a hurricane. There was one sm- small but surprising fact to me in this part of the book is that most hurricanes don't originate over water. Yeah, they, most of them, about 85% or so, or maybe well, it's more like 65, 70%, 
they start over the Sahara Desert, where there is very hot air, but also there's moist air coming in from the Guinea coast and from the Indian Ocean. And when those mix, they create very unstable areas or African easterly waves of thunderstorms that travel towards the west. And when they exit the edge of the African continent and then head over the Cape Verde Islands, uh, a certain percentage of them, a small percentage of those organizes to the point that it becomes a tropical storm, which has winds of at least, sustained winds of at least 39 miles per hour. And then a smaller percentage of those will elevate, sort of evolve uh, to become hurricanes with winds of at least 74 miles per hour. And then those Cape Verde type hurricanes travel across the Atlantic. Some of them don't hit land. Some of them go into the Gulf of Mexico or the Caribbean. Others go up the East Coast. Uh, but there are also hurricanes that originate uh, in the uh, Gulf Coast area or below off of the northern edge of South America. And then there are some hurricanes that originate in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But most of them are Cape Verdean hurricanes. And most of our major hurricanes tend to be these Cape Verde-type hurricanes. And one thing I want to mention that's really important, my book is a history of the hurricanes over 500 years. I am not a meteorologist. There's a lot of science in the book, but it's described in a fairly simple way. And one of the things that this book did for me, I always had respect for meteorologists and weather forecasters. I always knew that their job was difficult. But after reading what meteorologists have to do and the complexity of their job and these computer prediction models and just what goes into just making a hurricane forecast and understanding the dynamics of hurricanes, I have even more respect for meteorologists. But don't read this book if you want a detailed science lesson on the meteorology of hurricanes. But if you want to understand the basics, then this will do a good job for you. Well, to that end, we're talking as the 2020 hurricane season is in full swing. And in fact, while there are two named storms that are heading towards the U.S. uh, Gulf Coast, uh, what did you learn about what contributes to years where, like this one, where there's a higher prediction, higher forecast of named storms? There are a lot of things that go into it. The most important is having warmer temperatures in the ocean, because as we talked about it before, the main fuel source for hurricanes is the warm water in the ocean. And we have above average temperatures in almost all of the Atlantic. There are also very uh, positive conditions over Africa, monsoon conditions that contribute to hurricane formation. There looks like there's going to be a La Nina as opposed to an El Nino, which also reduces vertical wind shear in the Atlantic which allows hurricanes to form uh, more and and stronger hurricanes to form. Uh, So it's a lot of factors that combine that make for the prediction. And the prediction is pretty scary. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration came out with a prediction that there are going to be 19 to 25 named storms, and that's tropical storm and higher. Whereas in a normal year, there are only 12. We're already beyond 12. I think we're on number 14 right now. And we've got Hurricane Laura, which is making a beeline for Texas and Louisiana. And then we had briefly Hurricane Marco, which degraded to tropical storm status. But as we saw with Hurricane Isaias, 
even a tropical storm can cause widespread devastation. So people shouldn't just focus on the category level. There are a lot of factors that go into the devastation that ensues after a hurricane or even a tropical storm rips by. Well, while you're referencing both categories and names, can you tell the history of the naming conventions? When did that start and, and how they're done? Yeah, that was in late in the early late 60s, early 1970s. There was a guy named Herbert Safir who uh, was doing work in the Indian Ocean on development and urban development. And he developed a wind scale that had five sort of categories. When he showed that to Robert Simpson, who worked at the National Hurricane Center, Robert Simpson had long been looking for a convenient uh, sort of shorthand way to give viewers and consumers of the news a way to understand uh, the nature of the storm that was heading their way. Before the Saffir Simpson wind scale, basically they would say, you know, this is a huge hurricane, they'd give the wind speed, but people didn't have an easy shorthand way of saying, oh, is this a, what kind of hurricane is this? So Simpson took Saffir's wind scale, modified it a little bit, and came up with the Saffir Simpson wind scale, which goes from category one all the way up to category five, which are hurricanes with winds, sustained winds of 157 miles an hour or more. And we're all very familiar having consumed weather news for years with the uh, Saffir Simpson wind scale. And it gives us a good sense of how concerned we should be. And that's why right now with Hurricane Laura, which is projected to become a major hurricane, which is any hurricane category three or higher, of at least 111 miles per hour, uh, people are getting more and more agitated because on average, major hurricanes and more powerful hurricanes can do more damage. Uh, but again, don't let the hurricane uh, category alone determine what you do if one is approaching. Because even a category one storm like Hurricane Sandy, which plowed into New Jersey and New York, can cause widespread devastation. And what about the naming conventions? Uh, the naming convention is fascinating. That's one of the parts of the book that I enjoyed most. Uh, you basically, early on in the 1600s and 1700s, they would just name hurricanes after the year that occurred or where it occurred, like the great colonial hurricane of 1935. In the 1800s, many of the hurricanes in the Caribbean were named after saints. And then in, around the late 1800s, down in Australia, down under, a guy named Clement Raggy, a meteorologist, started naming hurricanes after uh, Tahitian maidens. Like he mentioned one, he called her uh, uh, Alina, a dusky maiden who's bound to cause trouble. And uh, he actually got in trouble not for naming hurricanes after women or Tahitian maidens, but when he was sacked from his government job and the government stopped funding his hurricane work, he continued to report on uh typhoons and hurricanes, but he started naming them after local politicians and saying rather nasty things about him. And that got even more of his funding cut off. But then we skip forward to 1941, when a, a very popular novel called Storm by George Rippey Stewart was published, became a national bestseller. It wasn't about a hurricane. It was about a storm that barreled across the Pacific Ocean. And in it, a junior meteorologist decided to name all storms after women. He sort of would christen them with a name and give them a little bit of personality. And he named the storm in that book 
uh, Maria, or Mariah, actually. So that book was sent out to GIs and naval, Navy men throughout the Pacific theater during World War II. So they were very familiar with it. And actually in the 1940s, in the Pacific theater, the Navy and the Army started naming typhoons after women. Uh, that didn't get adopted right away here in the Atlantic. But in the early 1950s, the Weather Bureau decided that people were often getting confused trying to keep track of hurricanes. So they adopted the Army-Navy phonetic alphabet, Abel, Baker, Charlie, to name hurricanes in 1950 or 51. That lasted for a few years. But then uh, partly based on the influence of George Rippey Stewart's novel, Storm, they decided in 19 in the mid-1950s to start naming hurricanes after women. There was some pushback. A lot of women in particular didn't like that idea. One woman said that she would much rather that her house be struck by an unnamed hurricane than one named after her, one of her husband's former girlfriends. But despite the protestations, the Weather Bureau, which is the precursor of the National Weather Service, decided to stick with the female-only naming convention. That lasted for quite a while, but then we bumped into the late 1960s when the women's movement was really gaining steam. And one woman, Roxy Bolton from Florida, who was a vice president of the National Organization of Women, decided to speak up. She argued with the Weather Bureau and then the National Weather Service that they shouldn't name hurricanes after women. And she was tired of re reading news reports of hurricanes being referred to as vicious, treacherous, villainous, and other horrible adjectives to describe them. And she said that women resented being arbitrarily associated with such destruction. So she urged the Weather Service to start naming hurricanes perhaps after birds or senators or politicians who love to have things named after them. She even argued that hurricanes should be called Himicanes instead. Well, her protests fell on deaf ears for a number of years, but then Jimmy Carter was got into office in 1976, and he appointed the first female Secretary of Commerce, Juanita Krebs. She was a self-described feminist, and she took up Roxy Bolton's cause. By that time, the World Meteorological Organization was in charge of the naming convention, but through the influence of the United States, in 1979, we adopted the system that we all know today, where hurricanes are named after men and women on an alternating basis. And if we go through 21 named storms, that's how many storms are on each list. And a name, you get a name after you become a tropical storm, not just a hurricane. So if we go through 21 named storms, then we veer into the Greek alphabet. And who knows, we might make it there uh, this hurricane season, if it's on the worst end of what the predictions say might happen. Boy, we can only hope that's not the case. Um, yes. Your your book, uh, as you mentioned, goes through 500 years of American history with hurricanes, all the way back to Christopher Columbus. But because we will not have time to cover lots of it, let me pick <laughs> out a couple of famous names. What was Benjamin Franklin's contributions to our understanding of hurricanes? Benjamin Franklin, he's our founding scientist. He was inquisitive, curious about almost anything. In October of 1743, when he was living in Philadelphia, he was very excited because there was supposed to be a lunar eclipse on one night. 
He walked outside to take a look at this lunar eclipse, but then cloud cover quickly uh, occluded his view. And then a hurricane basically came down upon him with winds coming from the Northwest. Now his brother was in Boston at the time. And he assumed since the since the winds were coming from the Northwest, that his brother also was disappointed in his efforts to see the lunar eclipse. But when he heard from his brother later, his brother said, oh, we saw the lunar eclipse fine. It was only a couple of hours later that this massive storm descended upon us. And this got Benjamin Franklin thinking, if the winds were coming from the Northeast, he thought that the, the hurricane uh, would have come from that direction. Uh, but he started looking at newspaper accounts between Philadelphia and Boston. And he discovered that this hurricane actually traveled from Philadelphia towards Boston. So he was the first person to realize that a hurricane had forward movement and that it could move in a direction that was different from that which the winds were blowing. So he was essentially on the left side of the hurricane with the winds coming in from the north northeast. If he had been on the east side of the hurricane, then the winds would have been coming from the south, uh, the, the southeast. Uh, so that was a good an important contribution to our understanding of hurricanes because before that time, many people thought that hurricanes didn't move much at all, uh, generally arose or died roughly where they were experienced. So that moved hurricane understanding forward a little bit, but it was not until the mid 1800s that we got a next, next dose of understanding. Well, uh, in the mid 1800s, Samuel F.B. Morse and the invention of the telegraph. How did that revolutionize meteorology? Well, the, the telegraph before that, you basically information went as fast as a locomotive or as, as fast as a horse or the Pony Express could, could, uh, could go. And one of the things that meteorologists were long bemoaning is not having real-time information about the weather many, many miles away. All of a sudden, Samuel Morse, with the invention of the telegraph, he became literally the lightning man because information could travel lightning quick. And as long as you had wires and telegraphs set up between different locations, you could get almost instantaneous reports of what was occurring farther inland. And over time, this enabled them to get a really good handle on how weather traveled over the continental United States. Also with underwater cables, we could get a handle on what was happening in the Caribbean before uh, the weather made its way to the continental United States. So this helped a bit with hurricane forecasting, not as much as it did with normal day-to-day -day weather forecasting, which was extremely important for agricultural interests. But the problem is that the telegraph wires ended at the end of land, or if there was an underground cable, they could go to islands but you essentially were still virtually blind as to what was happening over the broad Atlantic or anywhere that was far away from the coast. So the telegraph helped a bit, but it uh, wasn't cataclysmic in terms of forecasting hurricanes. While we're uh, staying with the history of technology, we talked earlier about the Hurricane Hunter airplanes. I have a video of a recent news story about how they work today. Let's watch that and then learn a little bit about their history. Three five. Three five. Come right. They are a crew of men and women. One zero zero. Just come left. Given a task like no other. We're going to be sampling 
uh, the wind at our altitude as well as the low levels to figure out whether the storm has strengthened. As long as it's still closed off, it's still a tropical cyclone. The NOAA hurricane hunters fly directly into tropical storms. Most importantly, we need to get the Hurricane Center information on its current intensity so that they can now issue new advisories and new discussions. We have Arc Center. There you go. We just went through the expected center of the storm. At times, we're about to fly into what is supposed to be kind of the most convective corner. The ride isn't so smooth. And this will probably get bumpy. But this well-trained and dedicated crew hardly noticed. So, Eric J. Dolan, who had the crazy idea, first of all, to fly into the eye of a hurricane? Uh, that honor goes to a man named Joseph Duckworth, who was a, a, a naval uh, pilot in 1943. He was the head of the Bryan, Texas Air Station. Uh, he had formerly been a pilot with Eastern Airlines, and in the late 1920s, pilots were learning about a new way of navigating through the skies, and that's instrument flying. That's when you can't see, when there's piece of fog or too much cloud cover, and you can't look at landmarks on the land or contact flying, but you still want to be able to fly. And that's very important during wartime. And this is 1943, and he's down in Bryan, Texas, and he's got these small uh, planes, AT-6 Texan planes, which he uses to train the people. And uh, in in 1943, there was a hurricane forecast to come into Galveston and uh, to go into Texas. And on the, the base, the higher-ups decided that they were going to move the AT-6 Texans farther inland, take them off the tarmac to protect them from the hurricane's punishing winds. Now, at the time, there were a bunch of British flying aces uh, taking a break from the overseas war to learn better techniques down in Bryan, Texas, and they started making fun of the Americans because they said, well, well, when a big thunderstorm or a storm hits the British Isles, we don't move our planes. They're not that fragile. Fragile. They can handle that kind of punishment. And so Joseph Duckworth looked over at these uh, British flying aces, and first he disabused them of the notion that a hurricane was just a bad storm. It could be much, much worse, and it was something that these Brits had never experienced before. But then he realized that this might be a good opportunity to prove how effective instrument flying was and also to prove how strong the AT-6 Texans were and that they could deal with a punishing beating. So he grabbed a local navigator, a navigator who was on base that day. He hopped into the plane, took off, and flied, flew toward the hurricane. He had to check in with the Galveston Air Tower. And when the guy in the tower asked them where they were heading, and they said, well, we're going towards the hurricane, he said, well, tell me your name again, because I basically I want to be able to know uh, which plane went down, because you're doing something that's crazy. You're flying directly into a hurricane. Duckworth didn't expect to go into the eye of the hurricane, but he did penetrate the wall. And then before he knew it, he was in the eye of the hurricane. And then he came back out. When he landed on the, in the air base, word had gotten around to this historic flight. And uh, the local, uh, not local, the, the naval meteorologist said, you've got to take me up again because I want to take notes on this. This is an historic event. So Duckworth went up a second time and made it back. And one thing I forgot to add that's very important, uh, Duckworth wagered with 
the British flying aces that if he made it there and back in one piece, uh, they would buy him a drink of his choice as the officers club. And he did. So they saluted their chief that day with a, a drink. So World War II also brought us radar. We have airplanes and radar. In the 1960s, we added satellites uh, and computer right. modeling. So by the time we get to the current age, how well are, uh, is the scientific community able to really predict what's going to happen with a hurricane? Well, there, there are two things. One, those, all those advances, what they've done absolutely is they meant it means that hurricanes can no longer sneak up on them. We are able to keep a bead on them and see them from almost inception to dissolution. So we are no longer surprised by hurricanes uh, coming ashore, the exact location perhaps, but in terms of how good they are in predicting what a hurricane is going to do, these are extremely complex meteorological events. Computer models, which may have do millions of runs and have numerous equations and a lot of data input into them, cannot tell you exactly what is going to happen, especially the further out you go. And that's why whenever on the screen you see a hurricane forecast, you see this cone of uncertainty, which essentially says that there's a two-thirds chance that the hurricane is going to make landfall, and that's when the eye intersects the coast, somewhere within that cone. But there's a one-third chance that it might stray farther outside of that cone. So although hurricane forecasts in the last 30 or 40 years have gotten much, much better, uh, they are not unerring. And there still are surprises that hurricanes throw at us, often up until the very last minute before landfall. One of the things that is most difficult to predict is rapid intensification. There are hurricanes like the Labor Day hurricane of 1935, which struck the Florida Keys and is still to this day most intense hurricane ever to hit the United States, uh, that hurricane just ramped up from a category perhaps one or two status to a category five status in a very brief window of time. And it was supercharged by the very warm waters in the Caribbean. But uh, so meteorologists know a lot more about hurricanes than they did even five or 10 years ago. And the forecasts are getting better and better, but the forecasts will never be perfect. There's going to be a limit to predictability. You tell us that Florida is the most impacted state in the United States. I would like to have you briefly tell the story of one of Florida's worst hurricanes that involved the, the Bonus Army uh, and uh, also Ernest Hemingway. Right. Well, that was, that was the hurricane that I just mentioned, the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. After the Great War, which is what they called World War I, a lot of our veterans were promised a dollar a day for every day they served if they were in the continental United States and a dollar 25 a day if they served overseas. Come the uh, mid to er the early to mid 1930s, a lot of these men, all these men hadn't been paid yet. And uh, they wanted to get their money because uh, the Great Depression had descended upon the country. So these quote unquote bonus armies, new, uh, thousands and thousands of men descended upon Washington, D.C., to demand their money. Uh, the Hoover administration was not particularly sympathetic. Uh, General MacArthur ran them out of town. And then FDR was elected, and he had his own bonus army to contend with because there were still 
people that came into town, into Washington, and uh, bivouacked or had tent cities near the Capitol. So FDR decided, uh, with the help of Harry Hopkins, one of his aides, they decided to put these men to work. And this is the time of the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. So many uh, veterans were given a job. And about 700 veterans were given the job to go down to the Florida Keys and help build the highway from the tip of Florida all the way to the end of the Florida Keys. A lot of those portions of that road were already there, but there were big, there were some gaps. So there were 700 veterans in Illamorta or Matacombe Key and Windley Key at these different camps. And it was the end of August and a hurricane was coming in. A lot of them had never experienced a hurricane, so they were kind of excited with the prospect. One of the problems is uh, the Florida Railway had an agreement with the people working at the work camps to evacuate the men if a hurricane threatened. But there was a slight misunderstanding. The people at the camp who were running the camp thought that the uh, railroad, the, uh, the trains could be ready almost as a moment's notice, just a couple of hours perhaps, and they'd be down there to evacuate the men. Uh, but the railway, uh, the railroad itself, thought that it would take some time before you could uh, get men to man the railway, railroad, and then also uh, fire up the boilers and get down to the keys. So as this hurricane approached, uh, they thought, the Weather Bureau thought that the hurricane was gonna go farther to the south. But with each successive forecast, it started angling more and more to the northwest, heading straight for the keys. But it wasn't until almost the hurricane was upon those men uh, in the keys that the Weather Bureau got the track and the strength of the hurricane correct. The people who were heading up the camps had requested that a train come down, but the request was fairly late and it took quite a few hours for that train to make it down to Matacombe and Windley Keys. And by the time the hurricane was already there with 185 mile an hour winds, major storm surges, and essentially the hurricane got caught, uh, the, the train got caught in the maelstrom and uh, none of the veterans were evacuated by rail. In fact, the train toppled over and uh, a few hundred of those veterans as well as many residents of the Florida Keys ended up dying. And Ernest Hemingway was very upset. He was very good friends with a lot of the veterans. He, of course, was an ambulance driver in Italy during uh, World War One, and he had fond memories, and he used to drink with a lot of the veterans on their day off in Key West, where he lived, at Sloppy Joe's Bar. So he was one of the first people to be on the scene after the hurricane to try to save anybody that they could. And the scene that he saw when he arrived just beggared description. He was absolutely mortified, and he wrote an impassionate essay in a communist newspaper of the time called The Masses, a magazine, which essentially, although he didn't clearly say it, he heavily implied it, that the government and uh, the railway service and the Weather Bureau were to blame for literally leaving these veterans out to face uh, death. So that was the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. We have about 10 minutes left in our hour with you. Your book has a chart of the 
most destructive hurricanes, and the names are all very familiar to people. Hurricane Katrina topping that list uh, at a Category 3, uh, and uh, we're actually celebrating the 15th anniversary of that storm. I want to talk to you a little bit about it, but before I do, it, you've got dollar damage estimates, but you talk about how hard it is to calculate the loss of human life for hurricanes. Why is that challenging? Well, it depends what time frame you use. Uh, there are initial deaths that are direct direct deaths that are a result of the hurricane, wind, houses uh, collapsing on people, people drowning. But then there are deaths that occur later, uh, and that could be from people during the cleanup of the hurricane, maybe experience a hurricane, a heart attack, or uh, maybe electricity is out in an area and a car accident occurs because the traffic signals at an intersection aren't working. Or maybe somebody in a particularly hard hit area doesn't have access to the medicines they desperately need, and weeks or months later, they succumb. So depending on how you define the indirect deaths or the later deaths determines the ultimate number. And it was only in the 1980s that people started taking account of both immediate deaths and those that occur at a later time. So again, it, it depends on the methodology you use, and the farther out into the future you look, generally the higher the death toll will be. The 15th anniversary of Katrina has, uh, first of all, the city of New Orleans marks its anniversaries regularly. Uh, and this year with the 15th, there are a spate of columns that uh, one can find on the Internet asking whether or not the country has learned the lessons of Hurricane Katrina. What are the lessons of Hurricane Katrina? Well, clearly have an evacuation plan in place and everybody be aware of what it is. So in the event that you need to use it, it is used effectively. You need to have a coordinated emergency response system where the local officials, the regional officials, the state officials, and the national officials are all in open communication and clearly telling each other what's going on and taking the necessary steps. You have to have individuals uh, take steps to hurricane-proof their house, perhaps if they are in an area that often gets hit by hurricanes. They also should have a go bag or, or supplies ready should they need to evacuate. They should be familiar with what they are going to do should they evacuate. Um, so those are some of the things that are important to think about, but it, you, you shouldn't ignore uh, the warnings. And also, I, I, would, I would make a plea for people to be more forgiving of meteorologists and officials because predictions are just that, predictions. And a lot of people in an area get upset if it's predicted to be a hurricane, a category three hurricane, and then it's only a category one or it's a tropical storm, and they did all this to prepare for it. Similarly, local politicians have to make a very difficult decision about evacuation. And there are times where people have been evacuated and the hurricane has gone in a different direction. And in hindsight, you didn't need that evacuation order. But I hope that people realize that the politicians and the meteorologists are acting in the best interest of the public. So it's better safe than sorry. And one other thing that we could do is think more broadly about how to protect ourselves from future hurricanes. Because with global warming, there's a lot of mounting evidence, although the cause and effect relationship is not 100% clear, that hurricanes of the future are going to be stronger and wetter as a result of global warming. Already, we have 
increased impacts of hurricanes because of global warming. There's been a thermal expansion of the oceans and melting of the glaciers. So the ocean levels are a little bit higher than they were 50 and 100 years ago. And therefore the storm surge causes greater destruction than it would have had the same hurricane hit an area 100 years ago. Well, and then, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, as I said, there are many, many things we can do, but the the difficulty is a lot of them take planning, time, forethought, and most importantly, money. That's individual expenditures and government expenditures. And we have a lot of things that we have to deal with. So hurricane defense, in a sense, has to compete with uh, many other priorities that society has. Well, in an epilogue, um, and you tell readers that it is not a policy book, but nonetheless, you think about some of these topics that are policy initiatives. uh, One of the large ones seems to be development of coastal communities. Uh, Is there a substantive debate going on in this country or in a community by community level about building in coastal communities and and how uh, sustainable that is? Yes, I think there's a debate in many communities, not all communities. I can tell you in my little hometown of Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is right on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, a beautiful area, there have been meetings recently in the last year to look at models that have been done by scientists to predict what Marblehead's coastline will look like under different scenarios of uh, global warming. And it's uh, quite sobering because many houses and businesses that are right on the edge, right near the water, are going to be impacted severely. And I think many people on the national level are thinking very hard about this, uh, but we could always think about it a little bit uh, more. And also thinking about it, planning for it, having major studies that tell us what we should do to protect ourselves from the future that is coming mean nothing if action isn't taken. And uh, again, that is going to be a very difficult decision that many communities and the national government are going to have to make about what steps we take to deal with a warmer world and the potential that hurricanes in the future are even worse than those of the past. So as we close here, uh, after spending all this time learning about the history of hurricanes and their ferocity, what, is, what are your key takeaways about the story of humankind versus hurricane? Well, the, the most obvious story is that no matter what, they're coming. There's nothing you can do about it except protect yourself as best you can. Uh, so that's one of the sort of the repetitive nature of hurricanes. Every hurricane season, it's not necessarily more of the same, but it's something that we know that's coming. Another thing that was disappointing to me in reading about the history of past hurricanes is how often uh, local, state, and federal government uh, mechanisms that are in place to help protect people and to help them recover after the hurricane blows by faltered or failed. And the result was more misery and devastation than I think needed to be the case. But there also is a silver lining. There are stories of people being incredibly kind and charitable towards one another and stepping up to help their fellow man and woman. So there are good stories and there are bad stories uh, in the book about our response to hurricanes and what's likely to happen in the future. 
So you told us at the beginning how one book often spurs your inquiry into the next. Has this inspired yeah. you to, to find another uh, angle of, of study for your next book? No. <laughs> no this, one, this, this one didn't work out that way. My next book, which I'm currently working on, is a history of privateering during the American Revolution and how privateers, or basically state-sponsored, they're not pirates at all, but state-sponsored uh, ships, merchant ships that have been converted to military vessels or uh, how they affected the course of the American Revolution. And uh, it's a very exciting book. I'm really enjoying it, but it didn't result from my work on A Furious Sky. But I will tell people there is a connection between the American Revolution that you tell and one hurricane. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and we'll, we'll send them to your book to learn more about that story. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Eric J. Dolan. The book is called A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.